Dr. William O is an expert in the field of prostate cancer. While we discussed the advances of the field over the past 20 years, I couldn't help but remark on how someone so successful could also be so humble. His love for traveling, his family, and work were all based on an admiration for his parents who sacrificed so much to immigrate from Korea during the 1960s. His passion for research and inspiring young people towards medicine aligns with the values that we share at the International Journal of Clinical Research. I was happy to have met him, and I know you will feel the same. This is Medicine Beyond the Science. So thank you, Dr. O, for coming on today with the podcast, Medicine Beyond the Science. We always like to highlight the people behind the science necessarily. Oftentimes we see an individual's name on a paper or a book, or we see them at a conference, but we really don't get to engage and see who they are as a person and also their views on the way the future of medicine will go and the passion that they have in the way of mentorship as well. So we're really thankful for having you today, Dr. O. And really just starting off, I often like to start things off a little fun in the podcast. And I would just love to ask about your hobbies. And like, I understand you're a very busy person, extremely busy. You have a lot going on in your plate. There's probably not a lot of times for any hobbies. But if you have any time at any moment, what type of hobbies do you like to get into? Oh, thanks. Thanks, Jake. Um, it's my pleasure to be on and to speak a little bit about my uh, pathway and, and, and uh, how I got to where I am now. Um, my hobby is my family. Um, I will say that uh, I used to like to go out to eat and uh, and see movies, two things that the pandemic has put a big uh, crimp on. Um, and I used to like to travel, a third thing that's very difficult to do right now. So, uh, so yeah, I, it leads me to do a lot more work, Jake. So that, I guess that's both good and bad. <laughs> yeah, it's good and bad. And I have to ask you then, you said you love to travel, but where was your favorite place to travel to? Well, that's a good question. Uh, you know, traveling to Asia uh, is really difficult, like places like Japan, Korea, and China. But it's just fascinating to go to parts of the world uh, where nobody speaks English and where uh, the food and culture are just, you know, really so different than what we see in the West. Of course, I was born in Korea um, and grew up in the United States. So seeing that duality is, you know, always very interesting to me. Yeah, and that's something I actually wanted to bring up to the fact you said that you were born in Korea. A lot of the people that we've had on our podcast right now, almost every single one of them is either uh, from a family of immigrants, like, you know, or their first generation. And I wanted to ask you, you know, when you came over from Korea, where did you and your family locate in the United States when you first came here? And what challenges did you have coming in at that point? Well, my parents uh, came here with four young children, so I, a lot of respect for that. And English was a, definitely a second language for them. Um, and I'm the first doctor in my family. They did not come over as professionals. Um, so it was really escaping a post-war Korea. Obviously, Korea was devastated by the Korean War and, and World War II. And uh, in, the, in the late 60s, the, the economy was building up, but um, my parents saw an opportunity in the United States, and as I still do, it's a wonderful country for opportunity. And um, and so when we first moved to uh, the United States, I had cousins who already lived here, 
that's how they that's how I got my American name as far as I know because I had a Korean name when I came and William is not something my parents chose uh, it was uh, our Americanized cousins who, who gave us me and my siblings our names William Robert Susan and Michael so just those were the popular names in the 1960s, just so you know. That's about that's about as American as you can get. Exactly. So, um, so I grew up on Long Island, and uh, uh, first in Montauk, and then uh, later in a town called Freeport, which is uh, a town on the way to Jones Beach, and went to public high school uh, there, public schools. That's fantastic you say that because I'm from Long Island and I grew up right next to Jones Beach in Wontaw and that's where I grew up. And I got to say, the one thing about Long Island, and you would agree with me, it's a melting pot of everybody. You're looking for somebody there. They have everything that you can possibly want in Long Island. And uh, I think that's something that's great about even our organization, the International Journal of Clinical Research, is that everybody's coming from all different backgrounds. We have everybody from Asia, from the Middle East, uh, and our listeners, too. We have already represented in 126 different cities, our listeners that we have. And they're always so uh, intrigued about hearing about, you know, what it's like to come to the States, look for that opportunity, but also to really make something of yourself. And I got to say, that's really inspiring about your parents. I could not imagine. I have two kids. I couldn't imagine adding two more to my plate and then moving to another country. It's it's daunting. It's hard. And you know there's a sacrifice that takes place. And that's an inspiration right there, um, all those people that come from that type of background. And I got to ask you then, who has been your inspiration you know, it's. I think it's. Uh, I appreciate your comments, Jake, a lot, and I think uh, we've been in an environment where uh, science has been a little under attack sometimes, and and also um, the value of an international community. I, I understand uh, uh, that people want to, you know, kind of go inward, especially when bad things like pandemics happen, and yet uh, we understand. That, um, that human beings are, are, are the same everywhere. Uh, that's, to me, the basic story here. And, and that there are people who want to do the best for their families and for their, uh, for their children and for their futures. Uh, people will do anything for that. And, and that's, I think you're right. Um, uh, to me, my heroes are my parents. And, um, and I, I see role models like this all the time throughout my career. I have two children as well. Uh, two boys who were born in Boston and grew up in the United States. Uh, their their childhood and their trajectory is very different than mine. They um, have been able to take um, advantage of all the great things that uh, that are available in the United States. But when I learned about today about IJCR and and both the international footprint and all of these um, young people who are joining the organization wanting to uh, do better for medical research and for um, their uh, careers and, and their lives. Uh, it's, a, it's a universal theme. So I, I, I think you're 100% right. Even though we grew up just a few towns from each other, uh, yeah. our, our pathways couldn't be more different, but they're really the same. And that could be true for somebody in the Middle East, in Africa, in Europe, in Asia. And I think the more we start to really appreciate that about human beings, uh, the, the better we'll all be as, 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 as a society and in human society. I think that's a really beautiful thing to say. And, you know, that's a one question. It's, you said it's universal, and that's true because everybody I talk to, it doesn't matter, we have 
those in Australia or in, uh, in, in China or wherever they may be. And, the, and they all have the same thing, the universal question. And that's what I'm probably going to ask you right now is that universal question everybody asks, because there's probably a person right now that's listening to this podcast and they're thinking, should I pursue medicine? Or should I even pursue research? And I guess I have to ask you then, what advice would you have for that person? And I know it's it's really a universal question because regardless of where you're from and regardless of your background, it, it, it has to start within you first. And everybody, they always ask me the same question. You know, what advice would you have for me if I want to pursue research, if I want to pursue medicine? Right. Um, you know, I think... Um, I can answer for myself that medicine and research were absolutely the right things for me to pursue. I couldn't be more happy in the choices I've made in my career. And I didn't always know. I I wasn't sure. When I was a kid, uh, I watched a television show where these lawyers seem to have, these law students seem to have a really very exotic life. I'm very glad I didn't become a lawyer. There's nothing wrong with lawyers. Lawyers are very important. But but in the end, it wasn't... um, you know, I picked, I think, the right career for me. And that is the combination of being a doctor, going to medical school, and doing research, um, medical research and scientific research. And I, I'd say the, the way to answer this question, because there, there's value in many, many different career paths, many, many different professions. There's a lot of honor in many uh, different roads that people can take. But the reason it was the right choice for me is that medicine has... Uh, many different components to it. Um, You can uh, study biology, you can study human behavior, you can study um, all the things that we all care about with regard to health and disease. Because as we said, that's a universal theme. People get sick everywhere. Uh, People need the healing uh, value of doctors. And, um, you know, when I was young, uh, I would go to my pediatrician's office and I'd, I'd really feel very a kinship with the idea of what he did. You know, it's a small little office, no research going on, but, but I, I, valued, I valued his reassurance of me when I was sick and maybe I just had a little cold or something. And that, that's when I kind of knew that that's what I wanted to do. And I didn't know for sure that I wanted to do research. I didn't really understand research when I was young. Um, and even in medical school, even as I... Um, you know, rotated through some labs and worked in some research on some research projects. I didn't really understand what a career in research would be. And now that I've been through it and I've had different ways of participating in research um, at two very well-known academic institutions and now in an industry role um, at a uh, health intelligence company, um, I really uh, realized that what I've always wanted to do was to apply the human aspects of medicine but still study how I could make care better by studying um, the disease itself and the disease process and applying it to the human beings that I'm seeing as a doctor. To me, that was the right mix. If I just saw patients 24-7, I don't think I'd be happy. Um, If I just did research in a lab, for me, even though I find that very interesting, I don't think I'd be happy. It's really, to me, the mix of being able to see patients, which I do one day a week, um, uh, see, I, I'm focused primarily on prostate cancer and GU cancers, um, but to take that information and to go back to uh, laboratory medicine, translational medicine, to databases, to uh, clinical trials, to all the ways in which I can improve that patient's care 
in, 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 in six months, six years. Yeah. And so you were saying about prostate cancer and all that, and that's something that kind of touched my family too. So back in early 2003, my great grandfather had prostate cancer passed away. Right. And that's all the way back then in 2003. It's crazy how many years ago, but to me, it seemed like yesterday that happened. How has the, how has it changed since then, since 2003, when he had it and he passed away, how has the diagnostic tools changed? How has the treatments changed? Has there been a real push forward or are we still kind of seeing ourselves what hurdles are coming forward and trying to push things ahead? Well, Jake, I think um, it's a very good case study for why uh, clinical care and research um, really have to go together because if nothing had changed since your grandfather passed away from prostate cancer in 2003 and we were having the exact same conversation about the exact same knowledge and the yeah. exact same drugs, we'd both be very depressed <laughs> because 17 years have gone by, 18 years, and so much yeah. other stuff has changed over that time. So I could give that answer to you briefly in talking about my career because like, I actually feel like you know, I was a medical student just yesterday, but I'm not. <laughs> I've been in this field for, you know, decades now. But I went to medical school at NYU, and, um, and I decided I wanted to do internal medicine. I went to Boston in 1992 to do my training at the Brigham and then subsequently the Dana-Farber. Uh, very famous Harvard hospitals, surrounded by a lot of smart people, uh, both in medical school and, and at, at, in my training. But I... Um, didn't know automatically that I wanted to do prostate cancer. I personally don't have the same history in my family that you do. I know a lot of people say I'm dedicated to this because, uh, because you know, my great-grandfather had it and I want to study it. In fact, I was more worried about gastric cancer because I had seen a, a case study, uh, uh, what's called an M&M, Morbidity and Mortality Conference, where a young woman, with, a Korean-American woman, had died of stomach cancer. She was in her 30s. And I was like, oh, shoot, you know. I eat some yeah. of that food, <laughs> you know, I was yeah, like, right. I, was like I, I, I better study this. And because um, people didn't really know a lot at that time about gastric cancer. Unfortunately, there's still not a lot of good treatments for gastric cancer. But but I realized, though, that um, that I wanted to get into research. It wasn't that I had to study prostate cancer. And at that time in the in the 90s, when I was a, a, a trainee, um, there was a huge deficit in who was studying prostate cancer, the kind of research that was being done, and the number of treatments. There's basically not a single drug that improved overall survival when I started in the field over 25 years ago. So, so fast forward to two different positions, one at Dana-Farber and subsequently at Mount Sinai. Fast forward to being engaged in clinical trials, clinical research, laboratory research, biomarkers, um, my, you know, my career over this period of time. And here we are in 2021, and there are actually um, at least a dozen approved drugs that improve overall survival that I'm using in my practice every day, that I'm part of clinical trials that have led to, to uh, discoveries that, have, that are impacting patients' lives. Your great-grandfather uh, would have had a better outcome today than he certainly had in 2003. And it's really quite remarkable. It's, it's really amazing because I have lived through that time as these drugs came online and as the papers I was writing and the, uh, the studies I was participating in or the insights I brought to the table 
uh, were are now available to to um, to uh, really implement. And I'll give you one quick example of that. Uh, when I was early in my career, I was studying chemotherapy for advanced metastatic prostate cancer, and I noticed that some patients would respond to carboplatin, a platinum drug. It's a traditional chemo that's been around for 30, 40 years, uh, used in many cancers like lung cancer and ovarian cancer. But it really didn't work in prostate cancer, except in a small percentage of patients, about 10 to 20%. And I studied that, and I understood that this was a drug that had sometimes very dramatic activity, but I didn't understand why. And it took several years to kind of for the knowledge to catch up. And it turns out that many of the patients who respond to platinum chemotherapy actually have DNA damage repair mutations, so-called the, the BRCA genes are the most famous ones, BRCA1 and 2. And uh, mechanistically, we now understand that patients with those kinds of DNA damage repair mutations are highly sensitive to platinum chemotherapy, whether they have breast cancer or ovarian cancer or whether they have prostate cancer. And that knowledge took 20 years to kind of discover. I made this observation many, many years ago, and I've been involved in the studies, and I talk about this as an expert in the field, but it took that many years to understand it. Now, I help patients along the way by giving them platinum, not understanding who should get it or why it was working, but that's why the science, the research is so important because we were able to get beyond platinum. Platinum is a very good drug. It's very inexpensive. It's widely available, but we now know a class of drugs called PARP inhibitors are even better at targeting those patients with those kinds of BRCA mutations. With prostate cancer, remember BRCA stands for breast cancer, but these are men with a BRCA mutation who have high response rates to these drugs, whether platinum or BR, uh, PARP inhibitors. And guess what? It's about 10 to 20% of patients. So it fits exactly with the story that I didn't understand 20 years ago, but I understood that the drug worked to now being able to, to, to identify those patients with biomarkers and then being able to treat them specifically, not only with platinum, but with a better drug or class of drugs, these so-called PARP inhibitors. Yeah. So in terms of being able to treat uh, prostate cancers, but then I'm also concerned about even trying to diagnose and to try to find it. Because now in my case, I saw that I had it in my family. Is prostate cancer something that is genetic that runs in family? Is that something that I should think of? Or is it just because of a lifestyle that causes it? Well, we, in the end, we really don't know what causes prostate cancer, unfortunately, even this many years later. But there is clearly a heightened risk in patients who have family, strong family histories. Interesting. Um, that said, it's a very prevalent cancer. And this is the other thing about cancer. We still define it by its anatomic site. We say, ah, it came in, started in the prostate. You all have prostate cancer. But what we sure. really understand now is that it's very heterogeneous. There are prostate cancers. There are some prostate cancers. Um, that are very aggressive and some that can be left alone. So the fact that they all started in the prostate may not be as important as the fact that there may be subtypes that are uh, behaving aggressively because there's a specific genetic mutation versus those that may be driven by a completely different pathway. The, the analogy I sometimes use with patients is that, you know, we all live in New York City. Well, I don't live in New York City, but when I'm seeing a patient in New York, I say, you, you know, everyone's a New Yorker. We know how to cross the street or you know, order a, a hot dog or not let somebody cut us in line um, because we're all <laughs> New Yorkers. But, of course. but we all come from all parts of the world. We bring our culture, we bring our background, we bring our languages, and that's what makes New York great. So, um, so we have to think of 
uh, every process in that type of heterogeneity. The heterogeneity matters with regard to understanding how best to treat cancer because cancer in one person may be different than the cancer in the other. Is it an endless number? Is it uh, a million types of prostate cancer? No, can't be. Can't be that individualized. But uh, are there a subset of buckets where which are driving certain cancers? The answer is yes. And in the case of prostate cancer, that may be five or six genetic subtypes um, and some in which um, the genes don't matter as much as, uh, let's say, lifestyle. But we're still working on that. And that's why we need research. That's why the, the need for research is, is, is it never ends. And that's why I think organizations like yours encouraging young people to, uh, to, to, to do that kind of research, I think, are so great. When I think of prostate cancer, I oftentimes think of it as something that, you know, only affects elderly men or older men. Is that always true? Or is it do you see cases of younger men as well? And like, if that be the case, like, as I'm starting to kind of get older now, I got two kids, should I be like more concerned or taking a test? And like, in terms of diagnostics, like I know there's usually the PSA blood test, you know, the prostate specific antigen test. Is that something that you know, a younger man should be considering. Yeah, so so it is a disease of aging, um, and it is more common as men get older. What you define as old, as you probably know as you get older, changes as you get older. Of course. <laughs> when you were 20, you were like, man, that guy's old in his 30s. And, and now, <laughs> now that I'm in my 50s, I'm like, 60 doesn't seem so old anymore. <laughs> so, um, so the answer to your question is that... Um, it is a disease of aging, but uh, men are, are, are getting prostate cancer in their, in their 40s and 50s, and they're dying of it at, at, in those very young ages. What we used to think were middle aged are now, uh, you know, not so middle aged anymore because people are living longer and longer. And, um, and I think the problem is that um, even though prostate cancer is still a very, very common disease, by far the number one cancer in the United States, um, it's still the second leading cause of cancer death. But the ratio between the number of men who get cancer and the number of men who die of it is about seven to one or eight to one. That means there's many more diagnoses than, than um, deaths, which is, which is good. It's better not to have a ratio of one to one, right? That's a, that's a sure. terrible ratio. And there are cancers like that where the number of diagnoses almost equal the number of deaths. Those are cancers that we absolutely have to do better with. But um, but I think that uh, the tools to screen, like you brought up PSA, or identify patients, um, it's that that science is moving forward. There are definitely situations where where better tests and better identification of patients who need to do something today versus those guys who might be able to put it off are are better understood, and and it really comes from uh, all of the different kinds of research I just we just talked about laboratory research. It's epidemiologic research, it's genetic research, it's understanding the biology, but also understanding what's happening to patients in the clinic. And that is really why, you know, being a researcher and a clinician um, is such a privilege, right? You, you get to, you know, one thing is I'm not an expert in everything. You know, I focus my career um, and I have a lot of respect for doctors who can do, take care of all different kinds of patients, but they're never going to have the same depth of knowledge of prostate cancer that I do, because that's kind of mostly what I've done over the last 20 years. And even then, I, I feel like I need to do more. I need to understand more. And so I think that 
for your audience, the people who are listening, um, you know, you may, again, how do you find the thing that you want to focus on? That's a hard question to answer. You have to kind of find the right mentors. I'd say that's really important. Find the right person who is your role model. You started by asking me that question. Sure. Who's, who's doing what you want to do? Who's inspiring you? And then start to model after them and start to even reach out to them and, 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 and really start to define your own pathway by getting those small wins that tell you, oh, you know what? I really like this. I really like discovering this. Or I really like researching this. Or I really like taking care of uh, clinic, uh, patients with this problem so that I can help them. And wherever you go, whether you're a radiologist or whether you're a bench researcher or whether you, whatever you do in the medical, biomedical field, it all, they all have a role. Dr. William O., I got to say, listening to you talk and just the passion and the the joy that you show every time you're talking about what you do. I can tell when you said before, I found something that was right for me. I think that's absolutely true of what you really did. And you even mentioned when you had your pediatrician when you were a child, the influence that they had on you, not just in terms of, oh, look, look at the medical things they were doing, just the personality and the traits that they have. And I think that's something that really came out in the way you talk about what you're passionate about, too. And I think that's really the essence of what we try to always pursue here in this podcast. And I just want to thank you again for your time. Thank you for everything that you're able to express to us today. And I wish you just continued success in your research as well. And I wish you all the best. Thank you. Thank you, Jake. It was a real pleasure speaking with you today. Take care. Likewise. Take care. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to hear more, please subscribe to wherever you'd like to hear podcasts. Until then, be curious and be kind.